Hey, I'm Dave Rubin, and this is The Rubin Report. We're live on the YouTube today, and before I introduce my guest, just a quick reminder that you guys should click subscribe and make sure you turn on notifications with that little bell there. Otherwise, you most likely won't see our videos, and we prefer if you see the videos as long as we're doing them. Okay, then. Joining me today is an author and Democratic presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson, welcome to The Rubin Report. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. I sense it's going to be a bit of a love fest because oh, that, so. that seems to be your thing. But you already made my day because right before we started, you turned to my guys and you said, am <laughs> I as pretty as Dave? And I feel like I've got all the quote that I need out of you going forward. Um, okay, so let's, let's just dive right in. So truth be told, I did not know a tremendous amount about you before the debate of a couple weeks ago. So let's just do a couple minutes on who you are and what got you to that stage, and then we're gonna dive into all the issues and talk about love and healing crystals and everything else. Oh, I thought- So take it away. Oh, I didn't know that was a specific question. So yeah. throw it at See, me. See, this is what happens after you've been specific. in- Well, just tell me a little bit about yourself. What sort of, what oh, got okay. you to be the person that is now standing on stage with uh, all right. All right. That, I, that other crew? I understand. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. And in 1983, I began lecturing here in Los Angeles at a place called the Philosophical Research Society on a set of books called A Course in Miracles. A Course in Miracles is not a religion. There's no dogma. There's no doctrine. It has been described by some people as a self-study program of spiritual psychotherapy. It's a book about forgiveness and love, and it's based on universal spiritual themes of all the great religious teachings of the world. How to be more loving, how to be more forgiving, mercy, compassion, showing up in the world as a more loving person, and how that heals everything. Right after I began lecturing over there, the AIDS crisis emerged full-blown, and Los Angeles was particularly hard hit. So it took a while for Western medicine to have much hope to offer. Not that they weren't trying, but this was a terrible, deadly disease that had, it, they kept playing cards and playing cards. It took a while. And also the institutionalized religious identities also, working through whatever they were having to work through, I don't know, were quite silent for a long time. So here was this woman, then a young woman, at that time, over in Los Feliz, talking about a God who loves you no matter what, and the miracles that happen when love is present. So gay men in Los Angeles, in a very real way, gave me my career, hmm. because it became a thing with the AIDS crisis that this, this, this one center, now Louise Hay was also, this was the time when Louise Hay was doing her thing called the Hay Ride. So there was a lot of showing up for emotional, psychological, and spiritual support um, to sufferers within the AIDS community at that time. I wrote my first book. Also, we started an organization here in Los Angeles. We started an organization to give non-medical non support services, both here and in New York, called the Centers for Living. And then one of the programs of the, the Los Angeles Center for Living was, and still is, Project Angel Food, which delivered nonprofit, um, which delivered free home meals to homebound people with AIDS. And today, that organization still exists, and it has served over 11 million meals. And I say that to point out that my work as someone talking and writing about spiritual topics has never been separated from showing up in very real practical ways as a nonprofit activist, et cetera, whether it has to do with people <clears throat> with life-challenging illnesses or people living in poverty or people uh, racial healing, reconciliation. I've always been very 
um, dirt under my fingernails with my spiritual work because to me there is no religious or spiritual practice that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. So if I had a time machine and I could go back to that woman in the, yeah. in the midst of this, and I assume you're probably talking about what, mid-80s? 83. 83? started, and then the, all of that started mid-80s, late-80s. <clears throat> so if I was talking to that version of yourself and was to say, you know, in about 35 some odd years, you're going to be on stage running for president of the United States, and at the first debate, you're kind of going to be the one that most people are talking about, what would you have said? This episode of The Rubin Report comes to you with support from our friends over at Bravo Company Manufacturing. In the Second Amendment, the Founding Fathers guaranteed an individual the right to protect themselves. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility and building rifles is no different. Started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago, Bravo Company Manufacturing, or BCM for short, builds a professional grade product which is built to combat standards. This is because BCM believes that the same level of protection should be provided to every American regardless if they're a private citizen or a professional. Bravo Company Manufacturing is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment. BCM assumes that when a rifle leaves their shop, it'll be used in a life-or-death situation by a responsible citizen, law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas, so quality is of utmost value to them. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand-assembled and tested by Americans in Heartland, Wisconsin, to a life-saving standard. BCM has always put people before products. They build their products because they feel it is their moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the end user when it's not just a paper target, but someone coming to do them harm. Because of this, BCM knows that making reliable, life-saving tools is only half the story. They also work with leading instructors of marksmanship from top levels of America's special operations forces. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com where you can discover more about their products, special offers, and upcoming news. That's bravocompanymfg.com. Need more convincing? You can find out even more about BCM and the awesome people who make their products at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. And now back to the show. If that's God's will, then that's God's will. Hmm. All right. All right. So let's, let's dive into a couple things here. Um, as of this morning, I saw an article that you are now polling ahead of Beto, of uh, Kristen Gillenbrand, and Cory Booker in New Hampshire. <clears throat> Not bad. W what do you make of what's going on here? Do you think this is all because of the first deba debate no. performance? No, almost despite it on a certain <laughs> level. I'm having a conversation that other candidates are not having. Now, first of all, let me say, all the candidates are really lovely people. And I don't feel I'm running against anyone. I'm, I'm running with a lot of really good people. But I am having a conversation that is different than those whose careers have been uh, entrenched in the political establishment for decades. Because I'm not prosecuting a case against Donald Trump, but I am prosecuting a case against the system that produced him. And I challenge the idea that only those people whose careers have been entrenched in uh, the system that drove us into this ditch are the only people qualified to lead us out of this ditch. You know, slavery didn't end because the political establishment woke up one day and said, let's end slavery. The abolitionist movement actually began with the early evangelicals and the early Quakers. The people stepped in, and that's what began the path to abolition. Same with giving women the right to vote. The political establishment didn't wake up one day and say, let's give women the right to vote. 
with the women's suffrage movement, it was an example of the people stepping in, which then led the political establishment to make changes. So in a weird way, does it seem like we're sort of absurdly focused on politics all the time instead of actually what you're talking about, which is more a, a movement of the people that isn't, it's not necessarily political per se. Well, I think that's sort of the point. Abolition was a moral stance. Women's suffrage was a moral stance. And the same with civil rights. It wasn't the political establishment that caused it. It was the moral stance articulated by Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And that is my point regarding what is needed today. It was the people stepping in with what Martin Luther King called a coalition of conscience that then caused a change. So when you ask me, what do I make of my polling higher than certain really cool people, lovely people who are entrenched within the political establishment, my point is that the change that is emerging from the bottom of things today. It, the, the deepest change, the deepest yearning that is welling up within people is not necessarily coming from the same status quo that created the problem. It's coming from within people who want to see an interruption in the political status quo. So when you ask me what I make of this, it, it, it's what's happening. It's what needs to happen. The people need to step in. We have been living for the last 40 years under what is, I believe, an illusion that a trickle-down economics where all that a corporation has to do is, 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 is uh, exercise fiduciary responsibility toward its, towards its stockholders, even if that's at the expense of other stakeholders like workers or the community or the environment, without any sense of moral or ethical responsibility to anything beyond that fiduciary responsibility. We were sold on that on the assumption that all this money would trickle down from the stockholder class, it would lift all boats. Well, after 40 years, I think it's, it's fair to say the jury is in. And not only has this, this economic theory that has so corrupted our government and hijacked our moral system, it has not lifted all boats. It has left millions of people without even a life vest. It has led to the largest wealth inequality since 1929. It has led us to the point where 1% of Americans own more wealth than the bottom 90%. And 40% of Americans in the richest country in the world live with chronic economic anxiety. Millions and millions of Americans. Americans for whom there is daily tension and anxiety. What will happen if I get sick? What will happen if one of my children gets sick? How will I send my kids to college? How will I pay off these college loans? And Dave, no one can, no one can soar living with that kind of tension. It's debilitating. It's emotionally and psychologically debilitating. When we are in that place, we can't create, we can't produce. Could you be doing this, this that is your life's work, which is obviously successful, which is obviously a conduit for the expression of your creativity and your enthusiasm, could you be doing this if you were crippled by constant worry about how you're going to just make it? 40% of all Americans who I believe have just as much talent as you and me, Dave, just as much, who are, who are shackled in ways that you're not supposed to be shackled by material conditions in the richest country in the world. Rather, that situation that I'm describing is the result of specific political policies, which over the last 40 years have represented a pattern by which major resources of this government have been placed in the hands of a very few at the expense of the many. Now, you and I both know if you make it into the club in America, 
no place better than this. <laughs> but what's happened in America is that not enough people can make it into the club. And that bodes ill for all of us because the American, the whole concept of American democracy is that this should be a space of possibility where anybody, if they work hard enough, can have a chance. Okay, so you gave me a lot there and I want to dive into some of the economic okay. parts of that in a little bit, but you said something, the, when, when I knew I wanted to have you on the show, was during the debate, you said something that I thought this is actually completely unheard of for a, a Democrat, at least in 2019, to say. You said, I do not believe that the average American is racist. No, I don't. And yet, it seems, if you watch mainstream media, we are just caught in, you're racist, you're racist, you're yeah. a bigot, you're a fascist, <laughs> you're a homophobe, you're a transphobe, this endless game. And unfortunately, and I say this as someone that was, you know, that I still consider myself liberal, but I'm, I'm a lifetime Democrat, really, mm -hmm. at least until the last two or so years, um, a lot of that's coming out of the left and from the Democrats, this labeling of everyone as racist. Well, I hear you and you're leaving out a very important factor, which is that the president, at least based on his tweets and his comments, is. So I agree with you that uh, a smug, self-righteous, intolerant left-winger is no less dangerous to the emotional fabric of our country than a smug, self-righteous, intolerant right-winger. And some of the shutdown, you shut up, you didn't say the right thing, comes from the left as much as the right these days. I will give you that. And it's dangerous and it's wrong. However, this president says things and is involved in it right now, which by any, by any measure are racist comments. Um, and then where else were you going with that? I can't well, remember. well, do you find it sort of almost impossible to have any kind of political conversation that doesn't get whittled <laughs> well, down yeah. to this? Because that sort of seems yeah. like where we're at. I don't even really know who's talking about policy anymore or, or really what I would rather talk about all day long, which is how much government is needed to do anything, yeah, which I think would be a rich I don't place know. to I have a discussion. I think it's more complicated than that. I think we need to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, on one hand, I certainly understand what you mean about how the public square is a place where it's almost impossible to have a conversation these days. Although, you just need to not be on Twitter too much. You know, that, that, <laughs> well, there are places that just make that worse. That's not the place for intelligent political conversation. Yeah. However, I'm a Jew. And I remember the first time I went to Yad Vashem. Have you ever, ever been to I have been, okay. yeah, in Jerusalem. Then you know, having been there, Hitler was saying things for years. He was saying what he believed, and he, was, and he said what he was going to do. The world didn't take him seriously. And so much, and books have been written, so many books have been written in years of analysis. Why didn't people leave? Why didn't take it seriously? And the answer was clearly, because nobody, everybody thought he was a crazy guy. Nobody took it seriously. Nobody thought it could actually lead anywhere. But then once he started actually doing what he did, and you looked back, and you know you, you see this, those films at Yad Vashem, he was saying it. And I, I'm sorry, we, we are naive to underestimate the danger of that kind of hate speech when it is coming from the highest perches of government. So, so, so do you, you fundamentally believe that Trump has that in him? That I'm not here to, I, I, I don't need to psychoanalyze the president. What, what, I, uh, what I'm speaking to is the effect on government and the country the words of the president. And the words of the president are very serious. And the words of the president affect not only people in this country, but they affect other countries too. Everybody's listening to the, to the words of the, of the American president. And yes, I think it's time for Americans to awaken to the lessons of history. 
Yes, I do. This is very, very serious. Now, when you said what we also need to be thinking about, I do too. And including the fact that, you know, now we're going through this business while the president said this about these congresswomen and now these congresswomen. And what is the Democratic Party going to say about these congresswomen? Where I do think this is enough is enough has to do with the fact that the deeper levels of systemic racism, and there is systemic racism in this country, ways in which social policy, economic policy, criminal policy is tinged by obvious racial prejudice. There is no doubt so, about so that. So can you give me an example of that? Yes. You could say white people and black people use drugs at the same rate, but a black person is liable to get a far harsher sentence for the same drug offense. So there is racial disparity throughout our criminal sentencing. Another example is there are millions of American children who go to school every day in schools that don't even have the adequate school supplies with which to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, then the chances of high school graduation are drastically diminished and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. These children live, many of them, in, what are, in what's called America's domestic war zones where psychologists say the PTSD of a returning veteran from Afghanistan or Iraq is no more severe than the, than the PTSD of these children. Now, these children, this is how it works in America. We primarily base our educational funding on property taxes. And since there's higher poverty among black children, that means that if, if, if you are a child growing up in a nice neighborhood in America, you have a very good chance of a high-quality public school education. But public school education should not be better for the rich than for the poor. So because most of these poverty-ridden neighborhoods are neighborhoods inhabited by people of color, not that poverty is only people of color, even though among people of color you have a higher rate of poverty, poverty itself is a huge and almost ubiquitous reality in America among mm -hmm. white people, too. So when you see things like this, for instance, as president, I wish to see this change. I wish to see every school in America a palace of learning, culture, and the arts. There has been uh, described, there's a term that was first uh, uh, coined by Marion Wright Edelman, cradle to prison pipeline. And when you look at the, uh, the sentencing of black people and people of color in our prison system, absolutely, to deny that there's not a terrible uh, racial injustice going on underneath there is just to uh, willfully deny the facts. Support for the Rubin Report comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house, it's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome and it's exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for you. Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans achieve their dream of home ownership, and when you're ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their teams care about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination nine years in a row and highest in mortgage servicing five years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com slash Rubin, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, numbers 3030. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com.
rocketmortgage.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage, and now back to the show. So there's this video of, uh, going around today, although I think it's from January, where you were giving a speech and you had the white people in the mm -hmm. audience uh, basically go up to the black people mm -hmm. in the crowd and they kind of put their hand on them and then you right. read a, it almost was like a sermon really, what, it was just, it was yeah. your speech, and you talked about white supremacy and you talked about reparations right. and all of these things. <clears throat> um, so for me watching it, mm -hmm. as, as someone that I despise identity politics, I think it is what has, it's, it's the root of almost everything that is wrong right now, which is why I'm struggling so much with what I would say is my former team, no, let's I, say. I, um, there was a, a certain collective guilt to what you were saying that, that was really troubling to me. I was really struggling when I was watching it. Okay, so. um, not that your intentions were not good, uh, you know what I mean? But that the idea of these sort of guilt-ridden white people, many of whom probably, well certainly none of them in that room owned slaves and probably many of them never mm -hmm. came from yeah. descendants of slaves, nor would I think that you're guilty for your father's right. sins, much less your right. great-grandfather's uh, great sins, et cetera. Um, there was a certain collective guilt to it okay. that, that struck me as, as scary. Do, okay. Does that ring with no, you? No, not at all, but I'll tell you why. Great. There's a difference between taking blame and taking responsibility. The Germans, German nation has paid $89 billion to Jewish organizations since World War II. And by the time they started paying those reparations, it was the generation after the generation after the war. Many of the people who started paying those reparations were children during that war. Nobody was saying... But it was to the people who survived. Not to, no, not to no, generations I, after. Absolutely. And to, no, it's to Jewish organizations. Absolutely. A friend, absolutely. It wasn't just to the people who survived. And let's talk about how few survived, okay? Yeah. So, no, it was not. It was to future generations. This is the issue. It is a spiritual concept. In Catholics, Catholics go to confession. And uh, in Judaism, there is the concept of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to take a fearless moral inventory and admit the exact nature of your character defects. Whether it's an individual or a nation. You can't have the future you want unless you're willing to clean up the past. Now, nobody is saying, I mean, my grandparents came from Russia my, in two generations ago. Nobody's, I don't believe that, you know, I personally, I, I didn't own slaves. That's not what we're talking about when you talk about national atonement and national amends. For instance, I want to tell you some, something else that I think a lot of Americans don't realize. In 1988, Ronald Reagan signed the American Civil Liberties Act, and everybody who had been a prisoner, a surviving prisoner of the Japanese internment camps in World War II were given between twenty and twenty-two thousand dollars. Now this is the deal. A lot of them But that, that was the direct people that, that were was, affected. That yes. was. But let's let's yeah. talk about this. The first slaves were brought over uh, from Africa, enslaved people, uh, sixteen nineteen. Uh, uh, slavery was not abolished until eighteen sixty-five. So that's two hundred and fifty years. That was followed by another hundred years of institutionalized violence against black people in America. Lynchings, segregation, Ku Klux Klan. This is domestic terror. Black code laws which ensured subpar economic and social and political opportunities. When slavery was abolished in this country, the U.S. government promised, because there were four to five million slaves at that time, the, the U.S. government promised that every former enslaved person, family of four, would receive between, uh, 40 acres and a mule. 
that would have given people who, who didn't have, where were they to go? Like Martin Luther King said, they were free, but where were the, what were they free to? Right, and most that, never got it. Most and, never got it. So there was an economic gap there that was simply never closed. A hundred years later, the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act ended, uh, dismantled segregation. Then the next year, the Voting Rights Act gave uh, equal access to the polls. So I'm not minimizing the things that have been done. That, that have corrected the struggles, the sacrifices of any of our ancestors, black or white. I'm not saying we haven't done anything. The issue is, however, that point of economic restitution has never been made. And the legacies of that economic injustice have continued even to the point where now we, we're sliding backwards. Mass incarceration means we're sliding backwards. Racial disparity and criminal sentencing means sliding backwards. All these voter suppression acts, because the Voting Act, Voting Rights Act was chipped away at, we're sliding backwards. So for me, the issue of reparations, so first of all, this issue of atonement. I'm a faith leader. This is what I've done for 35 years. So when I was doing ritualized apologies from white people to black, th there is turbulence there's turbulence under the under the, the under the waterline. You know, if you go to Germany, have you ever been to Germany? No. If you went to Germany 30 years ago, you really felt all the Holocaust guilt. And it's amazing how much has been flushed out now because the, the generations did the right thing. And that war was over in 1945. Civil War was over in 1865, and we are still at the effect of this underlying stuff that we we move on from one generation to another. Do, but so do you think when you there's apologize, a, do you, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, well, do you think there's a little bit of a risk in, in sort of, I mean, a couple of times you're referencing the genocide of the Jews to, to slavery. Seems like a little bit of a, a slippery slope there, no? I don't even know how we can say that, actually. And I say that as a Jew. Have you read up much on slavery? Yeah. We're talking abject slavery day. I mean, nobody's in a contest. Nobody has a monopoly on human suffering. This was abject slavery. Million, and also, if you started slavery in 1619 and you had two and a half years, two, two and a half centuries, and then at the end four, there were four to five million enslaved people, do you, do you realize generation after generation how many millions of people we're talking about? Right, right. I'm, well, I'm not diminishing that, but you can also talk about the extermination of six million people and the amount of people that never lived because of that, that would be alive. Or your well, ancestors from well, and from Russia who well, were never given anything and, and came here. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But the Germans have paid reparations. That's kind of my point. The fact that Germany paid reparations. Germany has done full on mea culpa. Germany has done full on mea culpa. Nothing short of full on mea culpa. Plus reparations, plus uh, a guarantee that every generation theretofore would receive full Holocaust education. That's kind of my point. They cleaned it up. And the fact that it doesn't mean that they can make the Holocaust not have happened, but it has had a tremendous moral, uh, psychological, and, and emotional effect reconciling Germany with the Jews of Germany and the rest of, of Europe. It, that's what reparations do. It is just like in a personal relationship. All that a nation is is a group of people. So the same psychological and emotional and spiritual principles that that. Uh, prevail within the journey of an individual, prevail within the journey of a nation. If you or I wronged each other, somebody was going to need to apologize in order for us to clean it up. And not only that, 
Well, but if, if you, you or I, but that's different than the collective nature But it's not. This. That's my point. Now, yeah. if you believe it's different than the collective, then you're right. But if you don't believe it's different than the collective, All right, then so that, I'm, that I'm might just, Okay, so that just might be a fundamental difference, and, yeah, that, and that's fine. I mean, I, I don't think I'm guilty of, of the guilty. past of anyone else. This is not about guilt. It's a difference between taking guilt and responsibility. There's a difference. If you, if you have a, a company that takes over another company, you inherit their assets and you inherit their debts. And so America inherited the debts of, of, the, of the South. And also there was a lot of, listen, systemic racism that wasn't just in the South either. You know, after World War II, the German chancellors and prime ministers, there was a lot of apologizing that went on. Uh, in my book, Illuminata, I talk about this. And you know something else? There was a pope around three popes ago, I think his name was John Paul. I get some of the Johns and the Pauls mixed up, but the, the, it was John Paul. And in the last few years before he died, he, he uttered these really amazing encyclicals, and he went around apologizing, and he apologized on behalf of the Catholic Church for the Inquisition, and he apologized on behalf of the Catholic Church for all kinds of amazing things. I remember but, but reading But was he handing out cash, too? Pardon? Was he handing out cash too? No, I don't or was think he, he was handing out cash. Uh, no, he was just, no, he was not passing out cash. Right. Too. But so, I, I do so want to. So these are separate things, though. Right? Atonement and amends are two separate things. Yeah. And what you were talking about seeing online was atonement. So, if I may say yeah. what he said, yeah. he coined a phrase which I thought was so brilliant: purification of memory. And he said, if you do not apologize for a what he called a sin in your past then you remain, sub, you remain unconscious of the ways you repeat it in the future. I thought that was incredible. So he was speaking there about institutions apologizing. Now, in terms of cash versus not, there is atonement and there is amends. If you look at something like the uh, Principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, you atone, but you make amends where possible. If you stole $1,000 from me, and then you came up to me and said, I, Marianne, I am so sorry that I stole that $1,000 from you. I would feel I really appreciate your apology, and I'd also like my cash back. So the idea of making an amends in addition to atonement is the way you truly close the circle of reconciliation. Right. So I think our disconnect here is just individual versus collective, because yeah. I, I hear you yeah. if I stole $1,000 from you, right. But, but not only did I not own slaves, but nobody in my yeah. family did, nobody, nobody in your family did. But if so, you were... So how, how much would be the right amount that well, then... I mean, how, how much are we going to hand people? Okay, so... Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I hand people. I don't think or, it's handing people, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. So, so let's talk about this. Yeah. Because I've been in this conversation long enough to know, no matter what number I utter, some are going to say it's too much, some are going to say it's too little. Yeah. Okay, so... There's if no magic you, number uh, here. Hold on, oh, hold maybe on, you can get me, it today. Rub up to this. Yeah. Let's just first of all say four to five million slaves or enslaved people, because people are very sensitive about the terminology today. At the end of the Civil War, if every enslaved family of four, formerly enslaved family of four, was given 40 acres and a mule, and you looked at that 40 acres in terms of today's acreage and today's math, it would be trillions of dollars. Okay. What I am proposing is between 200 to 500 billion to be dispersed over a period of 20 years. Now, let's look at this in perspective. We spend 750 billion in one year on our military expenditures. So I'm saying 200 to 500 dispersed over 20 years. And what I'm proposing is a, is a council of black leaders 
uh, a reparations council, as it were. There are people, Professor Sandy Darity at Duke University, Tana Hesse Coates, there are many people who have done scholarly work on this subject for a very long time. What I'm proposing is that the stipulation of the U.S. government would be that the money be spent on projects of economic and educational renewal. Now, within that stipulation, the, the U.S. government would be turning over a lot of money. Yeah. We certainly have a right to have some, like, what, what it's for. But within that stipulation of projects of economic and educational renewal, it would be up to this reparations council, which obviously needs to be very carefully chosen, to decide how, during that 20-year period, the money is to be dispersed. So I, so there's a couple of things here. So one, I think we, we also have a sort of disconnect on, and which is fine, yeah. completely, um, on just sort of what government is actually able to do or, or can do. I, I just don't think government can sort of do these these types of things like it's not I don't I just don't think it's the purpose of government I mean would we be so is the answer that we'd be taxing a first-generation Latino immigrant who just moved here who's struggling to make ends meet we're gonna tax him and what, take what, some where, well take some of his we're gonna have to tax people to pay for this right no, no, listen for what I would I like mean the money has to come from somewhere right so yeah, so the guy who just moved here the issue is we don't have to tax new people we need to stop cutting the taxes of the very richest among us we need to repeal that 2017 tax cut that was a two trillion dollar tax cut that gave 83 cents of every dollar to the very richest earners and corporations under this this illusion this this canard about trickle down economics even though there's no basis anywhere this is actually going to stimulate the economy I would put back in the um, middle class tax cuts. Then you stop these incredible and immoral corporate subsidies. Why did we give $26 billion, $26 billion alone to the fossil fuel companies last year? Then you say the United States government will no longer not be able to negotiate with big pharmaceutical companies for uh, drug prices. So you stop that, and then you say to, to the billionaires in this country, 3%. We get three, the government gets 3%. And you say to those who have 500 million and more, 2% makes sense. You know, I know billionaires who say, sounds right to me. I know a billionaire who said to me, living in this town who once said to me, my taxes are so low, it's obscene. And, and what's, why, why does he need the government to do something with his money? I mean, well, that, that seems to be the theme with these people. They keep saying, oh, we've got all this money, they should just take more of our money. But you know they do all the tricks not to pay out more money, and then well, they just do it to sound good, monolith. right? Rich people aren't a yeah. monolith but, anymore. But I think a, not every rich person is greedy, not every poor person is, is, um, is pure and noble. I agree with what you were saying before. I don't label people and then say, because of your socioeconomic group or because of your culture, well, I know who you are. I don't think we want to go there. I agree with you entirely. Let's not do that. So, uh, okay, so let's, let's say we did this. And I actually didn't want to get totally caught up in the reparations thing, but we're, we're here. We're there. So let's say we do this. What actually causes then the shift where, okay, we've had this council of black leaders, we've figured out how we're going to pay for this thing, we pay, okay, people have this money. What causes then the healing for people to say, okay, we're, we're good to go. Now the we reason, can move forward in a completely different way. It's a very important question, and, and, and it's exactly the kind of conversation we need to be having. If you just have, for instance, what some people call race-based policies, this provides economic restitution, but it doesn't address the underlying moral, psychological, and, and emotional issues. A reparations carry an inherent mea culpa. 
they carry an inherent acknowledgement of a wrong that has been done, a debt that is owed, and a willingness to pay it. It has a psychological and emotional effect. Dave, you know this as well as I do. Everybody's watching this knows there's all this underlying racial tension in this country. It's not spoken, it's resentment. It's, it's almost like, now in my lifetime, I've certainly seen the ways in which racial issues have gotten better. But at the same time, you see how certain things are unwinding, almost getting worse. And so we, we need but an integrated- Yeah, that really feels right to you. That feels like a media makeup to me. I, I don't think racism, that's why I was so thrilled when I heard you make that statement. I don't think most Americans are racist. Oh, I it's don't such, think most Americans yeah. are racist. But I don't, that's not my experience, and it's not my belief. But what is my belief is that the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race in the United States. And that's why I find, and I find this in very white states, I find it in New Hampshire and Iowa, with people standing up applauding the idea. Why? Because I go through the timeline. Two and a half centuries of slavery, we're talking about abject slavery here, then another hundred years of institutionalized violence. What do you call lynchings if not domestic terror? What do you call Ku Klux Klan if not domestic terror? Institutionalized white supremacy and segregation, this was violence perpetrated against the people. 350 years, because it was a hundred years after the Civil War before the Civil Rights Act. 350 years of institutionalized violence against the people, that's longer than our country has been in existence. So the idea of, a, of, a, of an economic restitution, by the middle of the 20th century, this was considered just civilized behavior. And, and that is what advanced countries do. Do you worry that as someone that comes from a sort of a spiritual healing side of this, that the collectivist portion on this, where I th we just sort of have an impasse, do you worry that, that that sort of collectivist guilt makes people feel guilty about things that have nothing to do with them? And what, what the damage that that could do to people that have literally nothing to do with it. Doesn't, we don't have to talk about this within a, a slavery context or a Holocaust context, but just sort of collectivism as a general rule, that it, it makes people attach emotions to themselves that have nothing to do with them as an individual. No, I don't, and that's never been my experience. I've been doing this for many years. People are smart, Dave. People are smart. There's no guilt there. I, don't, I can't say I feel guilty, personally. Uh, that's not what's happening. But I can see that my country has, this is a long and torturous relationship between blacks and whites in America. It goes back to the very beginning. And it, r relationship is a journey between people and between peoples. And that journey of healing and journey of reconciliation makes a difference. Because Germany has done the right thing, you feel in a generation of young Germans so much guilt flushed out Holocaust guilt has been flushed out. That's what we're talking about. We're ending the guilt. We're talking about getting past this torturous uh, phase that's lasted for hundreds of right, years. Right, but also in a weird way, then they opened up, uh, because they have this sort of residual guilt still, they opened up their borders and let in a million and a half people that then have you know, sort of well, caused all sorts I, of other problems with, with integration and financially and everything on. else. I, I, yeah. you, you just made a, a connection between those policies and leftover guilt from the Holocaust. I'm not, I'm not sure every German or every German scholar or German politician would agree with you about... Uh, well, I don't Holocaust think everyone would, but, but I think many would, that well, there was then, a certain guilt that explain, led... Yeah, but how would you explain that so many other countries over there did it as well? Um, well, that would be a whole other conversation about just sort of how the EU yeah. operates and sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. globalism and, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, yeah. Thank you.
Let's face it, we all like to look good above the waist, but what about below the waist? Guys, you know what I'm talking about, manscaping. A little trim down there can go a long way. Look, I've done it and it's not easy to get it right because you need the right tools. You can't use the same trimmer on your manhood as you do on your face, ouch. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. Manscaped is number one in men's below the belt grooming. Their lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin safe technology so this trimmer won't nick or snag your bag. Manscaped also has the crop preserver, an anti-chafing deodorant and a moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpit, so why not put deodorant on another area of your body? Don't get your balls in an uproar. Manscaped is here for you. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Get 20% off and free shipping with code RUBEN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code RUBEN. And now back to the show. We have a history, and now what's happening at the border now, this president is trying very hard to change this, but we have a, and in all fairness to Trump, much of this was beginning to change before. We have a history of assimilation, the immigrant assimilating in this country that Europe doesn't have. So that's why we haven't had, previous to this era in our history, the kind of problems that the Europeans have had. But I'm not... I'm not minimizing that you have an issue, that there's an issue there, but mm-hmm. I don't think we should conflate it with what's happening with uh, uh, race in America. Right, okay, so just to, to end this portion, so to get back to that question of, of sort of, okay, so you figure out what these payouts are or however you want to word it, how do we get to the end of it? How do you it's get- It's over in 20 years, you set up a number. Listen, I'm president of the United States- Well, how States. do you get over the, the general idea of, well, that's just not enough, my life's still not what I want it to be, well, or this or that, that, or- Listen, you, you have, to, have to have a big enough number that you're not going to have a bunch of young people saying, yeah, well, you didn't give us enough. I mean, that's why it has to be a big enough number. And right, I think but, but you think that number exists. I mean, I just think that's against sort of it's the way a humans... Dave, it's a negotiation like any other. You know, I've said to uh, a Professor uh, Darity when we talked about it, okay, I'm president, I, I, I call Professor Darity, we talk about who should come to Camp David because we're going to have a weekend and we're just going to talk this thing through. And it's going to be a contract negotiation. So, for instance, a couple of black leaders have said to me, well, but, I mean, you know, what if we don't think that's enough? I said, that's what a contract negotiator is all about. You might say, well, that's not enough, we're, we're going to wait. And so then the assumption is, well, would we get more 10 years, 15 years from now? I don't know. Or would you get less because so many immigrants are coming over from Ghana and Nigeria and Kenya? So, but that, hey, Dave, that's what a contract negotiation is. No president who has a plan. It has, you know, the president doesn't have a magic wand, which right now, thank God. Yeah. So I'm not saying elect me and this is going to happen. I'm saying elect me and this is the plan we're going to, we're going to really sit down and enter into negotiations and see if this can happen. Do you want to be president or do you want to be sort of like a, like that there should almost be like a side thing next to president, sort of like where, where in the, you know, in many other countries, there's a president and a prime minister where there's sort of. No, we have a constitution. I'm fine with the constitution. So I'm not suggesting we alter the constitution. No, no, no. Well, I mean that, I actually mean that more spiritually where a lot of the things you're talking about maybe. I think we need to review the role of the presidency. Franklin Roosevelt said that the primary responsibility of the presidency is not the administrative aspect. He said the administrative aspect is secondary and the primary role of the presidency is moral leadership. 
It's only been recently that we've seen the role of president as so technocratic, so administrative. You know, you can have the best a car mechanic in the world, the best car mechanic may or may not know what road should you drive to New, to New Hampshire. You know, we, we need to include within the notion of the presidency vision and, and uh, uh, an imagination and the ability to harness imagination and moral certitude. You know, this idea, you know, of experienced politicians, experienced politicians took us into Iraq. You know, there was plenty of experience. There was no wisdom. There was no moral certitude. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely. I not only want to be president, I think I'm the one who would beat Donald Trump because I believe that, um, for whatever reasons, we want to talk about that. And I believe I'm the best woman for the job. Um, let's talk a little bit about just sort of the race in general and okay. just all the stuff that you have to be involved in now. Okay. Um, so the Spanish at the debates, everybody <laughs> speaking in Spanish. <laughs> it, it struck me as sort of the worst sort of pandering I know, nonsense. and I tweeted that first night, I tweeted, I need to learn Spanish yeah. by nine tomorrow night, and I yeah. exploded on the internet. Yeah. I, I don't, I doubt, I kind of have a feeling that the men who did that didn't end up real happy that they had done that. Yeah, but kind doesn't that strike foolish. you as sort of that sort of identity politics thing that I'm talking about? Where you're does. just handing people this nothing. Of course it does. I'm not, you know, I always say, I, I, I talk about the same thing, whether I'm talking to rich people, poor people, English-speaking people, Spanish-speaking people, gay people, straight people, uh, Jewish people, Christian people, Muslim people. I'm talking to the American in all of us. That's what matters now. We need to have an American conversation. Even when we talk about reparations, to me it's not a black agenda, it's an American agenda. So I agree with you, that stuff's kind of silly and um, hasn't, re hasn't really helped, has yeah. it? Was your mic cut? There was that whole thing well, where Andrew Yang I, you know, was saying his I, mic was cut, you know, and then you thought there were a couple times I tried to get in there, and I and th there was no sound in my mic. That absolutely happened. Yeah. Now they've said they didn't cut anybody's mic, but that was my experience. What's it like, just the general circus before the whole thing? Well, first of all, the other people who are running are lovely people. Um, that has been. Um, I've really been impacted by, impacted by that. They're lovely people. Do, do you think they were all kind of shocked by you? There was one picture that kind of went viral where like everyone, you know, because you were at the... Day, I really is. Well, everyone's kind of looking, like, looking at you. At yeah, yeah, and I think when I did my thing about love, I saw Kirsten Gillibrand look at Kamala Harris like... <laughs> yes, and I, you know, there have been a lot of funny memes about that, and I think some of it's justified. I was on the floor laughing also. I, I've never done this before. Um, but I don't, I don't regret the substance of anything I said. So and really, if we were... People, I think a lot of people who laughed then also said, yeah, but when you actually look at what she said... Well, that's why I wanted to have you here, because I know we have some sort of fundamental differences on just sort of what the role of government is. Like, it's just, it's fairly obvious, but yeah. you're obviously <clears> a good person and all of those things. But I thought, when you said the thing about love, even though that, in a weird way, not in your sense, but in, for the average person, that has nothing to do with politics, sort of, uh -huh. right? Not through your lens, but for the average person, it has nothing to do with politics. But I thought, well, that makes more sense than anything else that I heard up here tonight. Now, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Looking at the world today, looking at the world since 9-11 particularly, who can say hate has nothing to do with politics? Well, I don't think, well, it's not that hate or love have anything to do with politics. Well, no, I'm, I'm okay. very serious, though. Yeah. Hatred gave birth to terrorism. Hatred is behind Nazism. 
hatred. In other words, when it comes to the negative emotions, nobody doubts the part negative emotions play mm-hmm. in, in, ex, in, in creating and determining political dynamics. So does love. What do you think the civil rights movement was? It was, it was, a, it was a spirit-centered movement of the heart. So was the original abolitionist movement. This idea, what love, uh, you, you told me that you don't have children. Yeah. But you have people you love. Has, is there anything in your life that would motivate you more than you're loving someone? And when somebody needs help, what you would do for them because you love them? People ask me, well, what is the politics of love? It's not mysterious. You see a hungry child, you feed them. You see a, 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 um, a child who's not educated, you feed them. You see a sick person, you help them. You see a poor person struggling unnecessarily, you help them. And you see a planet which is rife with potential conflict, you wage peace. Yeah. You, 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 you love your planet enough to no longer recklessly degrade it. And you love your planet enough to repair it. You love your great-grandchildren who you'll never even meet enough to, to p- pass public policy that will not only serve you, but will serve other generations as well. It's not such a mysterious thing. Love, you know, Martin Luther King said, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. I'm talking about a powerful and intelligent and wise love without which I think it's very questionable whether or not we will even survive the 21st century. So do you think it's possible that sort of the road to hell is paved with good intentions here? Because a lot of these things that you're talking about, so every, all the examples you just gave, I, I'm for those things. I give money to poor people when I can, and I volunteer when I can, and things that I do at sort of the personal level. But that it seems like a lot of the answers that are coming out from everybody on the Democratic side right now are just that the government should do these things. And I would, me personally, would always be leery of the government because the government is the people that put people in slavery. The government is the thing that, that exterminated six million Jews, et cetera, et cetera. So my preference would always be that we're always taking power away from the government, we're giving the government less money we're, so that it will spend less and do less things so that we can do all of those things in our personal lives. And I wish I heard more out of, from the Democrats about well, that sort of thing. There is a healthy skepticism that anyone should feel, any American should feel, left or right, towards government overreach. And leftists feel just as much as you do, it just tends to be in different places. Okay, like stay out of our bedroom, et cetera. Okay, so healthy skepticism about overreach by government. But let's not kid ourselves, Dave. The people we're talking about government doing less today aren't saying small government. They're saying, let's just give the money to corporate control. So whereas you're saying you don't want overreach by government, I'm saying what it has turned into in this country, it's code, less, less, less overreach by government, has turned into huge overreach by corporate forces. So all the money that you're saying, well, I don't want the government to do that, all that money's just been marched over to short-term profit maximization for health insurance companies and, and big pharmaceutical companies and gun manufacturers and chemical companies and fossil fuel companies and defense contractors. Their overreach, the overreach of this new matrix of corporate overlords is to me to be feared just as much as overreach by government. So you think that's something... And by the way, no amount... You talked about how you give. No amount of private charity. And we always need private charity. And government can't do everything, nor should government do everything. But no amount of private charity can, can compensate for a basic lack of social justice. 
You know, you, you can give a million dollars and it's oh so wonderful, but basically because of our tax structure, billions are going to the same situation that makes it so difficult for that person so that just dropping a million dollars into a charity, it helps, but it doesn't in any way change the fundamental pattern of injustice. What do you make of the whole sort of game that you have to play to be part of this? That you need some of those things to go viral, you sort of, you said the love thing and you didn't know what the reaction was gonna be and, and all of that, that has nothing to do with, whatever our differences might be, it's irrelevant. It's like, that has nothing to do with the policy or the ideas, but just the game to keep your, your name out there, make sure you get enough people to give you enough money so you can get to the next debate. And First of all, what you and I have talked about here, President Eisenhower said the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. What you have articulated are high-minded conservative principles. And I hope that you feel I've articulated some high-minded liberal principles. The yin and yang between those two is the American mind at its best. The, the, I had Eckhart Tolle in here a couple weeks ago. He was giving me a version of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the problem, the enemy of America today, and it is an enemy, an opponent of our democratic institutions, is not a conservative mentality or a liberal mentality. It's a corporatist mentality where short-term uh, short profits for economics over, overshadow everything there. That, that's, that's not a righteous conversation. But when you keep referring today to our differences, this is, that's healthy differences. Those are, that's just called political debate in America. Yeah. That's what a free society is. Well, that's what we need more of. That's we need why, more that's, of that, right? That's so why I, I, I don't do see this. that as the problem. Yeah. That's actually the answer. Yeah. And for people to actually see what you and I have done here today, oh, you can have a healthy debate and conversation. Oh, where's the liberal principle? Where's the conservative principle? And both are in, in, important. Yeah. Now, believe it or not, I actually consider myself a liberal. I consider myself an old school JFK liberal. It's just yeah. that the, the, the things have been flipped in such a crazy way that I hear you, like the things that I'm laying out here, well, it, sounds, labels, it sounds sort of like, I know, and the labels are all nonsensical now. The labels now themselves and, don't yeah, help. Yeah. The labels themselves don't help, and the Constitution didn't mention political parties, and George Washington warned us against them, and that's part of the labels and the filters. As far as the dog and pony show, my experience, particularly as a candidate, is that there are two separate political universes. One is the dog and pony show, who's up, who's down, what the polls say, how much money, what the pundits say, and then there's the real deal, particularly in the early primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, where people know how much power they have. Californians have that power now, too, because of the, the early voting that starts next February 3rd. But I don't think right. most of Californians have really taken in what that means yet. Right. But when you're actually talking to people who know that the power doesn't lie in Steve Karnacki, the power lies in what we vote or what we caucus, it's very profound. And I feel an honor, it's just an honor to be part of it. And it's deeply meaningful. And that's what politics should be. Politics should be a deeply meaningful conversation and a conduit for the higher aspirations of the American people. The fact that it has been turned into something other than that is what you and I now need to change. Yeah, so you're worried that everything has become too political, right? I mean, I talk about that a, a No, I'm worried about what politics has become. Mm -hmm. It's not that I'm worried that things have become too political. Life is political. Our, all, the, all the political means is our collective behavior, and collective behavior has consequences, just like individual behavior does. What I worry about, and why I'm running, is that politics itself has become a conversation unworthy of the energies that need to emerge at this time. These are very serious times and we need to be very serious people. 
we need to have an integrative approach. We need to think about these things in terms of how people feel, not just in terms of how they think, what the deeper needs of human beings are in order to thrive. Just like in 1776, our founders, they posited a different possibility for humanity. And that's what I, and I believe millions of us, would like to see in the 21st century. You know, if in fact the purpose of our lives is to love one another, there is no reason not to apply that to public policy. Because I'll tell you, if you look at what we have now and the state of our world now, how are we doing? How are we doing? Well, I think we might have a little disagreement here too because we're what? doing pretty well. There, really? Yeah. You and I are doing well, Dave. No, no, I mean the world. There's infant mortality rates are at the lowest they've you know ever been. There's less starve? violence there's ever been. There's less, how, but there's less people starving now than there were 50 years well, ago. Well, I agree with that, but it's yeah, 12,000. I mean, hold on, hold on. I, I hear that. Yeah. 12,000 a day. Well, I'm not saying the world's perfect, but almost all of the, the metrics that we can judge a, a successful world on, everything's trending better mm, now. Well, you and I would, could certainly have a longer conversation yeah. about that. First of all, I'm an optimist, and I, yeah. I'm someone like you who has benefited from the high side of, of the marketplace when it works and the American capitalism when it works. I get the high side, and I get that if you're in the club, this is the best place in the world to be. We're living at a time, Dave, where not enough people can get into the club. When you have 1% of Americans owning more wealth than the bottom 90%, what you've got is what I said before, 40% of Americans who, who can't even have a shot. We talk about how the economy is good. Who's the economy good for? And we look at the low unemployment rates, but you realize how many people have to work two, three jobs a day just in order to pay the rent just in order to pay the rent for a modest two-bedroom apartment. There's a huge sea of unnecessary human suffering. So I don't think I fail to see the, the good stuff, but I believe it's our responsibility, particularly as people, particularly as people who have won in ways that we have won, to concern ourselves with the benefit of all. Yeah. We can do better. Look at the state of our planet. Look at the state of our environmental crisis. Look at the fact that we have so many, we have 7,000 7, nuclear bombs in our own arsenal. Look at the fact that we're, we're talking about who has nuclear bombs and we know that there are people working every single day to, to get their hands on one who are the worst people who could possibly get their hands on one and would, would seek to do us harm. And the, and, and the fact that even recently we almost had a military strike against Iran that was stopped only 10, 10 minutes before it was planned. We've got some very, very serious problems. That's why I want a Department of Peace. I want us to wage peace as assiduously uh, and as effectively as we prepare for war. I know you wouldn't want to give it to him, but does Trump deserve some credit for not doing that strike? If he got a, he got a call a minute before and you know, 120 you people are going to get killed? I will tell you what I think he does deserve killed. credit for. Yeah. In terms of Iran, no, it was the president who, got, who recklessly removed us from the Iran nuclear deal. That is what led up to that. The president taking us out of the Iran nuclear deal, out of a situation that was an international leveraging, where by all indicators... Iran was, that we know of, the, Iran was complying. So now they've said the other day that they're going to go on and enrich uranium beyond what the agreement called for because we had pulled out. No, I cannot give the president any credit for what's happening with Iran. The fact that he was about to do something so unbelievably reckless. Because let me tell you something, given the size of the Iranian army alone, you think Iraq was a catastrophe? 
nothing compared to what war with Iran would look like. So obviously some hero, we don't know exactly who it was, but we know someone within the higher echelons of either his administration, his national security apparatus, or the military talked him out of it. That we can be very thankful to this person, whoever they were. The one place where I'll give some credit to, to the president, somebody had to stand up to China. So I'll give him that. All right, so let's, let's uh, I want to be respectful of your time here, so let's just knock out a, a couple other issues. So the one thing that you brought up that nobody brings up in a presidential debate, you brought up food and how yes. we eat. <clears throat> yes. And well, this actually seemed to strike a chord with people. Yeah, we don't have a, a health care system in this country. We have a sickness care system. What we do is we have a higher level of chronic illness than any of the other advanced countries. And then what we talk about is who's going to pay for our health care. What we really need to talk about is why are we so sick? And if you're going to do that, then you have to look at our, our environmental policies. We have a, an administration that has gutted the Clean Air Act, gutted the Clean Water Act, overturned the ban on pesticides that are absolutely scientifically proven to harm a developing child's brain. Why? Because our EPA, instead of actually acting as an environmental protection agency now, is headed by a former chemical company executive and before that by a former oil company executive. We have to talk about our food policies and the, the, de, the de-juicing of the FDA. We have to talk about our agricultural policies. We have to talk about our chemical policies, even our economic policies, given that so much stress underlies so much chronic illness. So absolutely, and this, this is the thing, Mo many Democrats, uh, what I want to see the Democrats do is more than just address the suffering, which they do more than not, and I respect that, and I'm very grateful to be a Democrat for that reason. But we need to do more than that. We need to challenge the underlying forces that make all that suffering inevitable. So we have to do more than provide health care, as important as that is. And I want universal health care, and I, I stand for the public option in addition to the Obamacare, et cetera. Yeah. However, would you allow for private health care? Yes, so you would. Want, okay, because that does seem to I be a I want to be an agent of change. I don't want to be an agent of chaos. If we come in too hard on one issue like that, we're going to lock the brakes. Yeah. You know, we have to be thinking in terms of governing here. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. interesting because that's one of the ones where to yeah. me it's like, all right, you want Medicare for all? Okay, I can, I'm yeah. not a big government guy, but I can kind of get yeah, there yeah. so that everyone can have it. But if you're going to then tell people they can't have no, private, insurance. I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. But let me ask you a question. You say you're not a big government guy, but don't you see it as a function of government regulations, safety and health regulations, so there isn't the spewing of carcinogens in our air, spewing of carcinogens and toxins in our water? Yeah, well, I didn't say I'm a no government guy, uh, thank but, you. I, but I would try to roll back as many government. regulations as possible as a general rule. Safety regulations, Dave? Well, no, I didn't say every okay, regulation. I want you. to make sure well, that, that's yeah. what so many people on the other side, certainly the corporatist side, Yeah. The corporate decide, get government out, get government out, it's business killing. First of all, you, you, have, you create more jobs by having to, uh, to answer to some of these regulations that are proper regulations because it takes people to do that. Yeah. So we have so many carcinogens, so many toxins in our food, in our water, in our air, in these horrifying pesticides. So absolutely, if we're gonna have a real healthcare conversation in America, and that's what I want to do as president. I don't wanna just talk about how we're, gonna, how we're going to help you when you're sick. I wanna talk about how the government, and how not just the government, how the society can work in such a way that so many of us aren't sick to begin with. Okay, a couple more quick. We'll try okay. to do them quick. Uh, it seems like everyone's kind of veering to some version of open borders. That that's somehow no, something kind of. No, so you say tell you're a me. Democrat. Where do you get this? Well, I don't you consider. You say I'm a Democrat. 
Democrat. No, no, I don't know. consider myself a Democrat no, anymore. I, I don't consider heard, myself a Republican, but I'm definitely not, not a Democrat. Heard, I have not heard one candidate. Well, they won't the say Democrat. it, but but the policies oh, seem so, to be. Oh, you don't say it, but you really, I mean, is, is, that, is that healthy, honorable debate? You say it if you believe it. I don't believe it. You can have well, healthy. No, I, I, I take them at their word, and it seems to me that the policies ultimately is, are. Why? Why? If you say we should have proper security at the border, but that is going to take, remember, the president has closed a lot of the ports of entry. That is what has created so much of the squeeze here, because he's closed so many of the of the border entry points. Of course, we need we need border enforcement. Of course, we need more judges. Of course, we need more agents. Of course, we need more technology. That, to me, goes without saying. He is withdrawn those things, and that has created more of a drama. But I do believe that borders should organize our, our societies. They shouldn't divide our hearts. And the idea of compassionate immigration laws has been one of the golden threads in the, in the tapestry of American history. My own grandparents came here through Ellis Island, escaping pogroms in Russia. So, so when, you, when you stop seeing, you know, asylum, even what he's doing right now, Asylum in the United States, seeking asylum is not a crime. It's a statutory right. This is a basic to the American heart. If we stop being... But what about the people that aren't coming through the proper channels? I'm with you. Seeking asylum, of course, is not. And especially people that are seeking it from truly tyrannical He's regimes, He's made it et harder et and harder for yeah. people to come through proper channels by closing more of the so-called proper channels. The president has done this. Ronald Reagan gave amnesty to 8 million people. Before 1973, if you were if you were an undocumented uh, person, you know what you did? You walked over to the registry office. This is a made-up thing. This is what dictators do. This is what authoritarian figures do. He's found a group of, of powerless people, and he can scapegoat them and make them the enemy, when in fact, the immigrant in the United States does as much for us as we do for the immigrant. That, uh, I where did your ancestors come here from? From Russia and from Belarus, but I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not anti-immigrant. I'm with yeah. you on that. I'm saying you have to figure out a way to come here legally, right. and, I and that seems that. to be the a and lot that's of the. What I think most Americans yeah. want. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times they're just conflating the difference between coming illegally and, and legal immigrants. So that well, that I creates... think what we realize is at this point it is made so difficult for so many people. You know, you look at something like DACA. I mean, are they legal? Well, they're not legal, but what fault of it is there? It's not their fault that they're not. And at a certain point, what are you going to do? It's like I was looking at a, last night, I think it was on Rachel Maddow, she was showing one of the debates between Hillary Clinton and, and um, Donald Trump. And she, boy, she was saying it. She was, she was so prescient. She was warning us. Like Rachel Maddow said, don't, don't tell us you weren't warned. All right, two more. Okay. $15 minimum wage. Are you, are you for it or against it? <clears throat> well, I am for it, and I realize there are some communities for whom it's too big a leap. So I believe that the government should uh, provide subsidies and compensatory measures in the meantime, because you'd some, there are some neighborhoods and some communities in this country for which it would just be, it, it would be too, too difficult. But that definitely needs to be the goal, and in those cases, I want the government to compensate so that we can get there. So if I wanted to hire somebody here, just a PA or somebody to fill water glasses and things, you would want the government to be able to tell me, to no, tell because, my company? You know, no, because we're in Los Angeles and you can afford $15 an hour, theoretically. Well, Los right, Angeles. but it's not about what I can theoretically afford or not. Yes, if it I, is. 
How is that? So if I, but I, because I have tons of people that would love to work for me for free. We pay our interns. I don't have, I don't want anyone, I pay 100% of all my employees' health insurance. I don't want anyone to work for me for free. But the idea that the government could come in if I wanted to pay someone, say, $12, because I could have several people do it for free, the idea that the government could come in and tell me. you look at something like fast food restaurants, okay? Yeah. So, 20 years ago, somebody worked at a fast food restaurant as a after-school you know, they were young people. Today, this is how people pay their bills and have to have two and three jobs. There are. But if you force those companies to pay those people more, aren't they just going to replace those people with iPads? I mean, we see that happening now. Well, that's why we're going to need a. You're not going to like this. That's why we're going to need a universal basic income. Because we have a tsunami of automation that's coming at us. But we right now have a situation where. There, for the way the wages are in certain industries, a person would have to work 144 hours a week in order to be able to afford a modest two-bedroom apartment. You can't have people living at this level of, of horror. Now, you know, a man said to me, I've been thinking about this for the last few weeks. He was talking about how, and he's a conservative Republican, lovely, lovely man, and he was talking about how he said, I presided over... The, I think it was the meatpacking industry in Iowa. He said when men used to make $15, $18 an hour, sometimes $20 an hour, they make good livings, they raise their families. He said, I was here when immigrants came into this neighborhood who would do it for six hours, $6 an hour. And I had to break the news to these guys. I'm sorry, fellas. I, 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 you know, they'll do it for six. So at the, at, it wasn't until after I left him that I thought, well, hello. That's why you're supposed to have unions. That's why it should have been. That's why an attack on unions is such an attack on the ability of working people to thrive. The problem there was not the fact that the immigrants came. The problem there was the fact that there weren't, that, that there weren't unions and that there wasn't a, uh, a, a minimum wage. Um, all right, one more. Okay. Healing crystals. Uh, What's the story? I have to tell you. What's the deal? I was going to burn some incense before you the got word, here. We were going to do a seance. I, I have a Ouija board over there. I, I have now, the word orb. Everything is orbs. I don't think I ever even kind of knew you the don't word have an orb? orb before. I think it's something in a photograph. I love geodes. So you don't have any healing crystals? Not, he, not that I don't think they're a wonderful thing, by the way. I think, I think stones have power and all that. But no, that's, I'm not that kind of, you know, it's just, I don't have any judgment on it. But number one, it's, I'm just not that kind of person. Number two, I do think the memes, some of them are hilarious. <laughs> and number three, we all ought to think very deeply. There's a reason why a certain group of people want me to be seen as wacky. There is a political media industrial complex in this country. And uh, there's this assumption that that insider game should rule this country in a way. That's not the U.S. Constitution. The, this country belongs to we, the people. And I'm one of those people, and so are you. And the founders looked to us and to all of your viewers uh, to be making the decisions that will determine where this country goes. No gatekeepers, not in America. That's a pretty good closing statement, I think. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and, I, and for whatever those little disagreements are, I mean, that's exactly why I do this it's show. And, I, and I wish we had more time to, to flesh some of this out, and hopefully you'll keep going, and we'll, we can do this again. And Thank you, I hope so, we'll, too. What about one, one healing crystal for everyone? <laughs> would, would, you, would you run, that, I could go for a tax increase on that. 
Not going to Not going to happen. Okay. Uh, for more on Marianne. That would be uh, too check... collectivist. Ah, see? <laughs> we brought it around. Uh, for more on Marianne, check out her campaign website at Marianne.com. No, and... Mar- no, no, no. Marianne2020.com. Is that your personal website? Yeah, because Marianne.com oh, is... is my personal. So that's the old, you know, the oh. stuff which is still very good. But that... for my campaign, Marianne2020. Boy, you did become a politician. That was huh? slick. Well, got... yeah, why I <laughs> For more on Marianne, check out her campaign website at Marianne. 2020.com. And if you're new here, click the subscribe button and make sure that you click the bell so it's solid and you get notified when the videos come out. And thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah.